as we turn our attention from the life of this man, Noah, we've kind of been examining him over the last few weeks and turning to kind of a new set of, of topics, starting with Genesis 10 and 11, the book of Genesis, it would be helpful for just a minute before we get to chapter 10 to quickly backtrack for just a moment by looking at a few verses from chapter 9 that kind of set the stage for the subject matter we'll be discussing this morning. First, following the flood and this process of recreation, God chooses to repopulate the earth, specifically using, we're told in chapter 9, using Noah's three sons. Genesis 9 verses 18 and 19, if you look at it, we read that the sons of Noah <coughs> were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from these, the whole earth was populated. Have you ever wondered where, where we get all of the different nationalities? Like how the ethnic kaleidoscope of humanity came to be? Well, according to the Bible, every human being alive today can trace their bloodline and genealogical heritage back to this man Noah and his wife through one of his three sons. In a sense, the Bible tells us that every one of us is a direct descendant of Noah through either Shem, Ham, or Japheth. Or, in case of the melting pot we call America, a combination of all three. You know, it's a fascinating thing to study. But with recent advances in our understanding of human genetics and microchondrial DNA, it is universally understood in the scientific world that everyone alive indeed descended from one set of genetic code provided by one woman. They call her microchondrial Eve. That said, the debate within the scientific community in recent years, is not centered on whether or not we're all linked together, but rather how long this linking would have taken. For the last few decades, the assumption has always been that this original woman would have needed to live somewhere between 99,000 years and 200,000 years ago for the math to work. And yet, a recent mathematical model created by Joseph T. Chang, a professor the Department of Statistics at Yale University. He challenged, his model challenged the entire assumption. According to his article published in the scientific journal Nature, using complex algorithms and formulas, Chang and his team were able to demonstrate that our most common ancestor, microchondrial Eve, this woman that we all have descended from and gotten our genetics from, may have lived, according to the math, just a few thousand years ago. Chang writes, quote, while we may not all be brothers, the models do suggest we're all hundredth cousins or so. His study demonstrated that even when you factor or incorporate more complex factors, such as socially driven mating, physical barriers, of geography that limit migration patterns, historical events. When you factor these things into his model, the computer repeatedly simulated human history beginning within the last 20,000 years, which, by the way, is a far cry 
from the 99,000 to 200,000 age range. According to Chang, the more realistic models estimate that the most recent common ancestor that mankind possesses probably lived, he says, approximately 5,000 years ago. What makes that fascinating and interesting is that these computer models are in actuality validating the very biblical narrative that we happen to be looking at. Notice how Genesis 10 verse 1 opens. We read, Now this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And sons were born to them after the flood. Well, I have absolutely no interest in butchering my way through the list of names that follows verse 1, as well as the list of names you'll find at the end of Genesis 11. It should be pointed out from an outline perspective that verses 2 through 5 of chapter 10 records then the sons of Japheth. Verses 6 through 20, we have the sons of Ham. Before finally, verses 21 through 31 of Genesis 10, and then more expansively in Genesis 11, verses 10 through 27, we have here the genealogy of Shem. So the chapter break, it's clear. These are the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. From these three people, everyone descended. And so here is their family lineages, their individual specific genealogies. Now, I guess it's as good of a point as as any to, to, to make sure you're aware that while I am not going to read through these lists of ancient names, you should not mistake that approach as somehow lessening the importance of the text. Here at Calvary 316, we believe that all, A-L-L, all scripture, every part of that book you hold in your hand is both inspired by God and significant, every part. The important truth is that these genealogical records that we're not going to read through are incredibly noteworthy. And here's why. These lists of names supply us with the most complex and comprehensive table of nations in all antiquity. To this point, American archaeologists Dr. William F. Albright, a man who you should note earned his Ph.D. at John Hopkins University, was the man who authenticated the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1948, a man who was not a believer, who was not a Christian. This is what he said after years and years of studying this list of names provided in Genesis 10. He writes, this genealogy stands absolutely alone in ancient literature. He writes, without a remote parallel, the table of nations in Genesis 10 remains an astonishingly accurate document. I'm not going to read the list of names. If you are interested in that and how each of these names Uh, correlate to an ancient group of people that grew into an ancient nation, that grew into people groups that exist today. Uh, I've included a link, c316.tv, to David Guzik's commentary on chapter 10. He goes through it. 
Uh, I don't feel like I need to. If you like that kind of stuff, by all means, knock yourself out. Now, before we move on, there is another reason that we have this genealogy, why the genealogy is important. Well, the list of names in Genesis 5 connects Adam and Seth, his son Seth, to Noah. It's important we have Noah and Shem, his son, genealogically linked to a man we're introduced to at the end of all of this genealogy in Genesis 11, verse 26, a man by the name of Abram. Abram, the entire story centers upon in chapter 12, is also known by the name Abraham. And and why is, is this link important? Why is this the case? Not only had God promised the coming Savior would descend from Adam through the lineage of Seth to Noah. But Genesis 9, verses 25 through 27, indicates of Noah's three sons, this Savior, the Messiah, would come, would descend through the family lineage of not Ham, not Japheth, but instead Shem. These verses, Genesis 9, verses 25 through 27, look at them. Noah said, Cursed be Canaan. That was Ham's son. A servant of servants, he shall be to his brethren. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth. And may he dwell in the tents of Shem. And may Canaan be his servant. It's important for the flow of these covenantal promises. The very promises that God gave to Adam there in Genesis 3.15. Passed on to Seth. Ultimately given to Noah. And now the God of whom? Shem, it's important that these covenantal promises be linked from person to person, finding its ultimate fulfillment resting in this man, Abraham. On a side note, we weren't able to look at this or discuss it last Sunday, but it should be pointed out that Noah's curse here was not on all of the descendants of Ham. The curse was on one of Ham's sons, Canaan, not the entire group of people. Which is important because some have inappropriately used this passage to justify the enslavement of the entire African race, which descends from Ham. That's an inappropriate connection. Why? Because not all of Ham's family members or sons were cursed. Just one in particular, that being Canaan. Noah only cursed Canaan. The irony is that none None of the descendants of Canaan possess black skin. And so it's just a stupid connection that we have to at least point out. Now, the reason this curse is significant is that when we're given the genealogical record of Canaan and Genesis 10, verses 15 through 19, the nations, the people groups that descend from Canaan would not only settle in an area come to be known as Canaan, an area that God would specifically give to Abraham, Abraham's son Isaac, Abraham's grandson Jacob, and the nation that would descend from these three people. But these groups, these Canaanites, would over time become the perpetual enemy of Israel. In a sense, this cursing of Canaan and the subsequent blessing of Shem whom the Hebrew people would descend, 
it actually sets the stage for all of the biblical conflict that will follow and the rest of your Bible. So, aside from these two chapters, chapters 10 and 11, providing the table of nations, which is important, as well as establishing this genealogical link from Noah to Shem, Shem, ultimately to Abraham, for our purposes today, instead of me mispronouncing all of these ancient names and in reality just making things up, I listened to five different guys read through this list of names and none of them pronounced the names the same. They're ancient names. Um, I barely speak English well. And so trying to do this, the minutia, forget it. But I do want to take our time remaining together to examine a central theme that's introduced to us in these two chapters that ends up weaving its way throughout the entirety of your Bible, the entirety of Scripture. We have something introduced in Genesis 10 and 11 that you will find as important subject matter at the end of your Bible, that being the book of Revelation, and this would be the spirit of Babylon or Babel. Now we noted back in Genesis 4 that following the murder of his brother Abel, Cain, not only refused to repent, but set out to create a world apart from God. In his rebellion, Cain built a city and a society specifically independent from the involvement and influence of God. Genesis 6 opens telling us that, that man was so wicked that every intent of his heart was evil continually. Thus God had to judge. Following this judgment, it appears from our text that it doesn't take long for this post-flood, post-Diluvian world to set out to do the same thing Cain did. In Genesis 10, verses 8 through 10, look at, look at these verses. We read that Cush begot Nimrod. So Nimrod was his son. And Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was Babel. Now, now turn to Genesis 11, the first four verses, because we're given here more details into this kingdom of Babel that Nimrod set out to establish. We read, Now the whole earth, had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. They said to one another, Come, let us make bricks, bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Let's begin for just a minute by discussing this man. This man, Nimrod. You've probably heard the name Nimrod. It's not a, a polite way of referring to people. It's not a kind thing to say of someone else. That guy's quite a Nimrod. 
many of you probably didn't know that the origins of that word find itself here in the midst of this particular genealogy, that Nimrod was actually indeed a biblical character. We're told that Nimrod is the son of Cush, which makes him the grandson of Ham, and ultimately the great-grandson of Noah. The name Nimrod. There's been a bit of controversy in regards to what the name itself means. Uh, both interpretations are very similar. On one aspect, it, some say it just means the rebel. And that maybe Nimrod, his name was actually something else. And that in an attempt to not glorify this man, Moses, in recording these things, just refers to him by the, the moniker, he's the rebel. And I'm not even going to give you his name, but that man who was rebellious. On the flip side to it, some people have, have speculated that, that the name Nimrod just means we will rebel, and thus it was a, a rallying cry. <laughs> if you Google Nimrod, you're going to find all kinds of legends written about this man. From the ancient Babylonians to the Assyrians, lots and lots of legend and fables and tales of this man. For our purposes, we're only going to examine what the Bible tells us about him. First, we read that during what kind of appears to be a population explosion, a couple hundred years after the flood, Nimrod, we're told, began to be a mighty one in the earth. That's the first thing we're told of him. We're told that he was a rebel, but he was a mighty one. The idea behind this Hebrew word translated mighty one is that Nimrod, somehow, he grew in strength, popularity. That he was a strong one, a, a warrior, a champion. The, the word can mean that, that Nimrod yielded power, possessed influence. By implications, it could be translated that Nimrod was tyrannical on the face of the earth. The second thing we're told about Nimrod is that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, now, this is where the English translation of the Hebrew can be kind of misleading. The word before we have here, before the Lord, it literally means in front of, towards, more specifically in the face of the Lord. The idea is that Nimrod and his activities were not something God looked kindly upon. They weren't done in a sense that they were to be honoring. They were done in the face of. What Nimrod was doing was an offense before the Lord. Some have even translated this phrase as Nimrod was a warrior against the Lord. In writing about this passage, 19th century scholars Kiel and Dilswich, they wrote, quote, Nimrod was mighty in hunting, and that in opposition to God. Not before God, in the sense of according to the will and purposes of God, lest still the name itself Nimrod, we will revolt, implies that there was a particular point of violent resistance to God. They continue, Nimrod, as a mighty hunter, hunter, founded a powerful kingdom. And the founding of his kingdom is shown by the verb with consecutive to have been the consequence or the result of his strength in hunting. So that hunting was intimately connected with the establishing of this kingdom. 
Hence, if the expression a mighty hunter relates primarily to hunting in a literal sense, we must add to the literal meaning the figurative significance that Nimrod was a hunter of men, a trapper of men by force. Nimrod, the hunter, became a tyrant, a powerful hunter of men. Aside from what appears to be his blatant opposition against God, the things of God, the person of God, being against the Lord. Many scholars believe that Nimrod was indeed a very skilled hunter of animals. Tradition actually says that Nimrod was a skilled archer. Think of, for a minute, the prestige that being a skilled hunter would have had for Nimrod in this post-flood world. Remember that following the flood, things changed between humans and animals. Beforehand, we're friends. Afterwards, we become foes. A hunter like Nimrod would have been seen as either a provider, because he could go out and kill animals and provide meat, or even a protector. You have lions and tigers, potentially even dinosaurs roaming the earth, having an opposition to men. That Nimrod was skilled in defense, able to take down beasts. Either way, Nimrod would have been seen as a hero to the society at large. My dad, Pastor Sandy, he wrote of Nimrod. Among men not accustomed to the new threat from the animal kingdom, Nimrod was an impressive person. He played on man's fears. In the wake of the new threats posed in a post-flood world, he was able to manipulate people to follow him. People looked to Nimrod for protection. And this is what I think is key. Nimrod was hailed or seen as a savior. Finally, we should point out that while our text says Nimrod was successful in conquering or rallying other people groups and even founding numerous cities of which Nineveh was one, we're told though that the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. It appears that Nimrod through force, will, coercion. Nimrod was not only to gain, able to gain, incredible power, considerable power, but he was able to do what few can, consolidate his power. You might consider Nimrod the first world ruler and Babel the first world power should also be noted that this is the first time in Scripture we find the word kingdom. Up until this point, we've had mention of cities existing, but this is the first time in the Bible that many cities were brought under the power of a central king and kingdom. Not only was the establishment of this centralized government directly opposed to God's commands. Remember, what did God tell Noah and his sons immediately following the flood. Opens the doors, goes out. What, what happens? God tells Noah and his sons something very specific. Multiply and go out, fill the earth. The idea of them congregating and building a city, it's in defiance of God's basic command, right? And yet there appears to be an even deeper form of rebellion 
behind Nimrod's establishment of Babel than what just meets the eye. The word Babel, it's an interesting word, and it means confusion by mixing. If you notice in the verses we read, Nimrod actually provides the fundamental purpose of Babel. I think in chapter 11, these first four verses, we're given two quotes from Nimrod. That Nimrod tells the people, we should build this city. Let us build ourselves a city. A city whose tower is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. God said scatter. Nimrod's like, let's build a city and not be scattered. Beyond the fact this city was specifically designed to unify the world's inhabitants under the control and kingship of Nimrod, look at two additional characteristics of Babel that we have provided in the text we just read. Nimrod's selling point. It was very simple, right? It wasn't complex. What does he say? What's the whole point of the city and the tower? Let us make a name for ourselves. There is a sense of pride here within humanity. It seems this city, Babel, was instituted, formed, founded, not only in rebellion against God, but it was founded to celebrate the glory of man. Let's make a name for ourselves. Babel. It was designed to be man-centric. Babel exchanged the worship of God for the might, the celebrity of men. As David Guzik observes, this was a statement of self against God. Also note, the city of Babel was to have a tower whose top is in the heavens. Now, this does not mean, as some have indicated, that the intention of building this tower was to have some form of a structure that would be floodproof. You know, God had destroyed the whole earth with a flood, and they're thinking like, well, just in case God tries to do that again, we're going to make ourselves a tower up into the heavens. So if the floodwaters come, we'll see if God can cover that joker. There's a problem with that. If that's your intention in building a tower, to make sure it's high enough, to escape a flood. Why in the world do you build it in a plain in the land of Shinar? Which might not mean anything to you, but Shinar is at sea level. If you're going to build a tower, at least build it on a mountain or a hill. How about not where like the waters rise a foot and you're immediately underwater? Just not the right place to build something if that's your intention. Furthermore, when we're told that they had brick for stone and asphalt for mortar, this does not tell us that they're trying to build a tower designed to be waterproof. This is another common misconception. Instead, what this seems to be describing is an important transition under the leadership of Nimrod. At this point, society is generally nomadic, where people live in tents, they travel around, they're in portable structures, but now something is changing, right? Nimrod's like, instead of moving around, going from one location to another location, forget the tents. Why don't we build for ourselves a city using more permanent building materials? We'll have bricks 
And we need to make sure the bricks can stick together. So here's our mortar. Now notice this tower was designed to have its top in the heavens. Admittedly, this phrase, in the heavens, can be misleading. A better translation into the English from the Hebrew would be unto the heavens. The idea is that this tower, as a central feature of the city of Babel, would be used to do something important. It was dedicated to looking into the heavens, that it would be used to gaze into the heavens in order to, more than likely, decipher stars and interpret divination, that it would be used for astrology. The tower was designed to be a central feature in a new religious system created and established by Nimrod, central to Babel. Yeah, it's interesting to note that not only do we see these step pyramid structures, they're called ziggurats, used for astrology all over the world. It's really an interesting study. From Babel, you find them in, in, uh, in Egypt, in China, even the Aztecs. The same basic building structure. Some people think that the origins of that was this tower, this step-like structure, and they were all used to read and interpret what God was saying through the stars. What seems to be, and what seems to make, Nimrod's building of this tower so unique, why it demands our attention, is that for the first time in human affairs, Nimrod actually sets out to exalt the involvement of men within divine religious affairs. In a sense, Babel here, it's egregious because it represents the very first man-made religion, which we don't find in the ancient world before the flood. What Cain did was pure rebellion. There seems to be with Babel, with, in Nimrod's leadership, some confused mixing, hence the name, Babel. Also the same word in Hebrew as Babylon. While having a physical location in bygone eras. Babel, Babylon, when you read about it in the Bible, while it's definitely a geographic city, the point of Babel, of Babylon, was to represent something bigger than just geography, a city, a, a literal people group. That Babel comes to represent this man-centralized, man-centric, man-instituted religious structure that facilitates man's rebellion. Babel was evil because it substituted the true worship of God for a worship of God founded by men. Like, let me just give you an example of how this plays out. In Revelation 14, verse 8, we read, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she had made the nations drink the wine of the wrath of her fornication. A system is what's being referred to. Revelation 17, verse 5, mystery, Babylon the great. What we have here introduced in Genesis 10 and 11, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. Always remember, there are two systems that exist today. Only two. 
There is one that exalts the true and the living God and one that substitutes God with one of man's own making. While this false system, the system of Babel, Babylon, well, it goes by many names, paganism, hedonism, cultism, materialism, on and on it can go. Scripture, it refers to it with one simple word, a word you'll find throughout the entire Bible. It's called idolatry. From its inception, Babel has always existed as the system whereby man seeks to create a God of his own making, often into his own likeness. Idolatry. What a weird word, idol. Like to our Western perspective, our typical mindset, the whole idea of worshiping an idol, like that doesn't resonate with us, right? Like I can even hear when you talk about an idol or idolatry, you sitting there thinking, Zach, come on, man. Like I don't have a little Buddha statue in my house that I pinch incense towards and pray to every morning before I go to work. Like I don't have an idol, right? But you misunderstand what idolatry truly is. Timothy Keller defines idolatry as anything that becomes, and I love, the, I love his phrase, he says it's a counterfeit God. A counterfeit God. In his book by the same name, he writes, quote, a counterfeit God, an idol, is anything so central and essential to your life that should, your, should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Idolatry then is not just a failure to obey God. Idolatry is a setting of the whole heart on something besides God. It's not a little statue. It's a stature of the heart. In this situation recorded in Genesis 10 and 11, Nimrod had exalted himself and this tower as a way to God. In a sense, he was the first antichrist. Not that he was against Christ. He was a substitute Christ, a substitute Savior. And while in our lives, idolatry doesn't take such an overt form, this is what's important this morning. An idol is anything given a preeminent position in your life over Jesus. Like, let, me, let me try to illustrate how it is that we, we set up for ourselves and worship counterfeit gods, how we end up finding ourselves idolatrous. So often, isn't it easy to get consumed by the moment, by that problem in front of you, by the temporal, the temporary? How easy it is for us to get our eyes off of eternity, destiny, and to get bogged down by the affairs of today. It happens, doesn't it? And this is what happens when we quickly lose sight of the eternal, since our life is now being dominated by the present, it's only natural that we do something interesting. We establish for ourselves, we create for ourselves a self-defined hell. Like hell, we end up defining as that one thing in life that's making things miserable. 
we have a problem, life stinks, and we isolate that one thing that if we could just get rid of, life would be so much better. We isolate all of our problems and we target one thing. We self-define a hell. For example, hell, for some of us, it can be poor. It can be being poor. I'm miserable because I'm poor. Life stinks because I'm going paycheck to paycheck. I'm underwater. I've got mounting debt. That's my hell. For some, it's loneliness. My hell is being lonely, being alone. <laughs> For some of us, it's, it's, it's our marriage. That other person. They're making my life miserable. They're creating a living hell. You've heard this, this statement. Some people, it's being fat. I'm fat. If I could just figure that out, remedy that. That's my problem. Others, it's being insignificant or bored. Maybe even the job that you hate, it becomes your hell. And it's at this point, since we all have a natural fear of hell, that we're compelled to do something interesting. We pinpoint, we define what it is that's making us miserable, hell, and then we find a functional savior that will save us from that hell. If, if your marriage is hell, if that woman is making your life hell, you know what you end up doing? You end up going out and trying to find another woman. And that woman becomes your savior because what's she gonna do? Save you from the other one, that ball and chain at home. If, if being poor is your hell, your savior becomes your stuff, your money, your status, if it's loneliness, your savior becomes a group of friends, a scene, <laughs> even a pet. That little furball, it becomes an idol, a god, a savior. If it's being insignificant, your savior becomes a cause, a social movement. If it's being bored, your Savior becomes a hobby or a sports team, a video game. If it's the job you hate, your Savior becomes a new career path. You find something to save you from what's making you miserable. There's a hell and you find a Savior. And that is how we fall into idolatry. Because once you've found a functional Savior, we'll just call it an idol, what happens? You will worship that thing hoping that it will save you from hell, that you won't be miserable anymore. That's why you see people worship stuff. Their appearance, a group of friends, an exercise routine, a significant other, a cause, recreation. They worship these things and they make, by the way, as a form of their worship, incredible sacrifices and offerings, time and energy and money. Consider... Is there anything in your life so central or essential to you other than Jesus that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living? If so, you have an idol. You know, sadly, I think Babel, as this establishment 
of the first man-made religion. It teaches us that, you know, the greatest form of idolatry is any system that creates a way for man to reach into the heavens apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. This morning, if you're relying on anything or anyone other than Jesus to be a savior, to approach and have access to God, if you're relying on laws to obey, traditions to adhere to, a priest to make confessions, a saint to intercede on your behalf, I hope you know you're worshiping nothing more than a counterfeit God. It's an imposter. And here's the interesting thing about idols. The interesting thing about idols is that God will never stand idly by and allow any substitute savior to be successful. Because Jesus is the only true savior, God will never allow a counterfeit to stand in his rightful place. Look at what happens to Babel. Verse 5, and we'll close here. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Notice the tower didn't go up to God. God had to come down to it. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one. They have one language, and this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, another reference of the Trinity, and confuse their language that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. They ceased building the city. It was left in ruins. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the earth. In his book, The Gospel in Genesis, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he makes this telling observation. He says, the one lesson of Genesis 11 is that if you plan your life without God at the center, it will come to nothing, nothing at all. It will be as futile, as fastest as the Tower of Babel. God will come down and will destroy it, whether you like it or not. This is the whole story, the whole history of the Bible. The human race is not allowed to build a lasting civilization without God. And you are not allowed to build your life without God. God came down and he judged Babel. He stopped the building of this idolatry. Not because he was vengeful or jealous, but because he knew where that would lead. Ultimate destruction. And so God judged, right? He judged. You know, speaking of God's judgment, because he does this all the time, we experience small versions of God's judgment. And I have found that when we do, you know what it ends up being? It ends up being God coming down and destroying an idol that I've created. Letting an idol fail. So that I would see it for what it is. You know that God's judgments in our lives, they're meant not for our destruction, but to set us back on the path that God had ordained to begin with. What happens as a result? They're scattered abroad. They're doing now what? God's will, what God had instituted, what God had asked. J.D. Garrar, he says this, and I found it so inspiring. He said, every judgment before the ultimate judgment 
is actually grace. Because it's God trying to wake you up. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't try to create for yourself functional saviors. But here's the guarantee. They will always fail. God will never allow them to succeed. If you think your hell is being fat, you can get skinny and still be miserable. God will allow it to happen. That's why I just gave up. Whatever that is for you, if it's that job, and so you quit that job and you find another job for happiness, to save you from being miserable, guess what will happen? God won't allow it to satisfy. You'll still be miserable. Why? Because God wants you to come to the real Savior, the real Redeemer, the real remedy. It's not these counterfeit things. We have the real, authentic, genuine product, a man named Jesus. It's not your wife that's making you miserable. It's you. And what do you need to be saved from your misery? A whole lot more of Jesus. I know people who have, who have given it all to an idol because they were searching for something and all they got back was that idol got destroyed and they went wandering. And why? Why does God allow us to go wandering? So that we'll find ourselves back at the cross. That we'll go from wandering to wonderment as to God's goodness. Babel, it exists today. It's idolatry. And don't think that your Western mindset means that idolatry isn't a problem in your life. There's only two systems, grace and Babel. So Father, Lord.